Bloody Elbow presents the Hey, Not the Face podcast. Your host is Bloody Elbow's chief financial columnist, John Nash. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Hey, Not the Face with your host, John Nash, and your producer, me, Steffi Haynes. And today we're going to be talking about unions specifically why they have not happened in MMA and why they are unlikely to. John, how the hell are you? Very good. Very. I'm a little cold. California, L.A., little, little. Weird. We got down to like 50 degrees tonight. Kind of cold. crap. What? Yeah, yeah it's unacceptable. Very, it's even... very much unacceptable. But we do have to move on because we've got a really meaty topic to unpack. So I'm going to kick this off right now because I saw that Jake Paul wants to start something called the UFA, the United Fighters Association, I believe is what it's called. And GSP came out and said that he's willing to support it if it's legit and shows promise. Now, if we go back a little bit in our memory castles, we will remember that GSP kind of jumped both heels in on the MA, the MMA Association or whatever that thing was. The MMAAA. Yes. So, seems like he's trying to approach things a little more cautiously. So, John... Is a union feasible in any way at present or even in, say, the next five years? Well, I mean, there, there's a lot to unpack when we talk about is union uh, is a union possible in MMA. I mean, personally, if you've listened to me on stuff, I'm very, I view a union as very unlikely. But other people, that is what they're arguing for. They think a union is the answer to MMA's problems. So I guess that's the that's the question we should look at this week. Uh, you, how hard is it to make a union? What does it take to make a union? And then I, I guess some of my my cautionary tales about why I think a union is unlikely in MMA. I should note, though, as people follow me on Twitter know or see me on If the Shoes Fit, I am incredibly pro-union. I'm a labor guy. But that's awesome. And that's what we need. Don't you think? I, I think so. I think I'm, I'm, I think a lot of our problems we have with the workforce in America is because of the, the weakening of the, the union movement in America. But that's, you know, when we're now we can go off on all that. We can go. I could spend hours on that subject, but well, we are here focused on MMA today. So, well, let's get down to the nuts and bolts of it. What is a union? Well, the simple answer is a labor union is a group of employees who join together or act collectively to advance common interests, such as things as wages and benefits and work schedules and other employment terms and conditions. When they join together and act collectively, they are represented by a union, which gives them a voice to negotiate with their employer. But we also hear association. What's the difference in a union and an association? Well, an association, well, first of all, I should say a union is an organization of workers who act jointly to negotiate benefits, I said, and rights for, at their workplace. They they operate in a workplace. An association is a nonprofit organization that promotes a profession by maintaining standards and advocating its interest. Because an association is not granted any exemptions by the National Labor Relations Act, uh, 
because it that is only for employees. Employees are you have to be an employee to be in a union because they're not granted those. They can't do stuff that is violations of the Sherman Act. They can't collude. In other words, act together for pay. So they can't strike or collectively bargain. So that's the difference between those two. Do fighters even want a union or do they want an association? What should they want? Well, the truth is, I think most people, most listeners even, most fighters, don't know the difference between a union and association. I think they use them uh, synonymously. They use them, they go, they mean both when they say it. What they really want is someone to work on their behalf. That's uh, so to me, the argument over is an association union is kind of moot because most people can't don't know the difference for fighters, though. The athletic did Chad Dundas, I think, led the athletic poll on this. They did a survey of fighters and it was something like 80 some percent of fighters wanted a union to represent them. Uh, Again, though, the question is, do they fully understand what a union is, what a union does? But it does show that there's interest in someone representing them, looking out for their interests. And I can kind of confirm that because I've talked to a lot of fighters. And off the record, they won't come out publicly. They do, the majority do think they want someone standing up for them. Okay, I have a couple of questions. Fire with, away. With a union, is there a specific number that need to come together to form a union? And alternately, does that same number apply to an association? No. Well, first of all, let's go association. Any group that gets together can work to be an association. No, there's like no barrier for entry. There must be no barrier. There's no real barrier to entry. You get together and you create, there's, there's obviously there's certain regulations stuff, but generally just any group of people working together can work as an association to promote their business. The uh, doctors have an association, the lawyers, the, the American Bar Association, they work together. The American Bar Association doesn't represent lawyers in a workplace at certain firms. They cover all the lawyers. It's an association working to promote the, the to promote the profession. For workers, it's a, a workplace. You have to organize at that workplace. And technically, there's no minimum. You could be two Two employees of a company. That's what I was going for. And and you could have a union, but there's a lot of exemptions and, and state regulations stuff about the minimum size. And yeah. generally when it's that small, it's a family business. But after a certain point, the number of workers get together, they can form a union. Okay. All right. Can fighters form a union if they're independent contractors, though? I, I don't quite understand that part. Well, the, the, the part is that the National Labor uh, Relations Act only applies to workers. So workers get the certain protections as an employee. If you're an employee, you get these certain benefits, such as you get protections from minimum wage for employees. You get Occupational Safety and Health Act applies to you mostly. The health care under the Affordable Care Act, your employee, enough, if he has enough workers, has to grant you health care. You got matching Social Security payments from your employer. Uh, you get unemployment benefits. That's what comes with being an employee. But independent contractors are people that work for themselves. They don't work for an employee. And for an independent contractor, good example is like a plumber. A plumber, generally, you need something repaired. You call a plumber to come to your place. He comes on his own, right? He does the one job. He brings his own tools. You do not tell him how to do the job. You might tell him what the problem is. I have backed up, and he comes, does the job, how he sees fit. Then he leaves. That's that's an independent contractor. But employee, if you owned a hotel and you had a plumber that worked for you, he would show up every day, and, and if it was a massive hotel, he might work on all the different plumbing issues that you have 
but in your hotel day after day. And you would dictate where he works, what part of the building he works on, when he shows up as hours. You'd pay him hourly. You wouldn't pay him on a contractual basis. So that would make him an employee of you, the, the hotel owner, even though he's doing the same job as that independent contractor. I have a question. Fire away. Go ahead. <laughs> Gig workers. Is there, tell me the difference because sort of gives me gig worker vibes too. I know that there's like many, many facets here, but I seem to recall a bill that was going through in California that everybody was fighting. I believe they were trying to overturn a bill that said that the Uber drivers and the Lyft drivers, they, it was going to be beneficial to them and Newsom sort of overturned it and it didn't get to pass. Can you explain a little bit about that and about gig workers and if they are somehow uh, comparable to a fighter? I'm just curious for myself. I, I think fighters are very similar to gig workers in many ways, especially UFC fighters. But you're thinking about, uh, originally it was AB5 was the bill passed uh, and then Proposition 22 was passed to carve out uh uh, carve out a, a wedge in that to, to, to make some exceptions for gig workers in California. But a better example right now is the, uh, the uh, what is it, the Hours and uh, Man Alive, I can't remember the name of the organization, the, the government. Oh, yeah. Well, originally, the, the, yeah, the Wage and Hours Division of the Department of Labor, had a brain part there for a section, has proposed a modification to their current standards for employment standards. The Trump administration had changed the previous rules for how you consider someone an independent contractor or an employee. Gig workers are considered independent contractors. And the Trump rule was the extent to which a company controls how a worker performs a job and the opportunity that a worker has to profit in the job based on initiative rather than simply earning a steady wage. That was their simple rule. But that made it pretty hard to be an employee for a lot of those gig workers. You were pretty much considered an, an independent contractor. The new standards proposed by the Department of Labor is they have six six key things they look at. And then one is the extent to which the services in question are an integral part of the employer's business. So uh, fighters seem somewhat integral to the fight business, promotions business. Of course, so are boxers in boxing. And everybody knows boxers are pretty much the epitome of a, con a contractor. So that's one. The second one is the, the amount of so-called contractor's investment in facilities and equipment. So fighters are overwhelmingly responsible for their own training outside the UFC, although the performance institute's changing that a little bit. But so you, you kind of lean towards fighters being independent contractors still. Three is the nature and degree controlled by the principal. Now, typically, a fight promoter has little control over a fighter. The fighter trains on his own. He tells you the date. You agree to it or not. This is where I think the UFC gets into some problems because UFC does stuff that other promoters do not. And those things are like USADA. You have to be available at all times for drug testing. Also, they have in the contracts the right to get you to do promotional for their own sponsors or other events. So you're kind of on demand doing other stuff outside of the normal fight business. They also own your brand and licensing. So there's all these things. And then, you know, we never forget, too, they have a uniform, which other promotions do not. So they have a lot of more control over their fighters than other promoters. And this is where I think there's the argument to make that UFC fighters, not other MMA fighters, not boxers, no other UFC fighters might be considered employees and not independent contractors. The last two, to just to finish the list, is opportunity for profit and loss. <clears throat> for other promotions, it's probably more because, you know, if you remember from the antitrust lawsuit, the UFC has a tiered payment system. Their payments are kind of dictated ahead of time. So 
there, it's, there's not a lot of negotiating there. The amount of number five would be the amount of initiative judgment or foresight required for success. Well, that's, you know, that's a, the fight business. That's a big part, taking the right fight, stuff like that. And finally, the permanency of the relation. Well, the UFC is probably less this way because they got rid of those perpetual agreements that they had before. So this is probably helps the argument they're more independent contractors, but there still is a lot of a much longer relationship with the UFC than t- typically with other promoters. The part about the, the control of the sponsors, I mean, that right there just seems so wrong. Yeah, that's the big question mark. When you make an argument the UFC are employees, you're saying the UFC has extra control. I do not think you can make it just based on their fight bout agreement because we, we've seen boxers for years have had these contracts have always been considered independent contractors. What makes the UFC different is the UFC has the control over the sponsorship, uh, the uniforms. The UFC also dictates that fighters have to, when part of the agreement is you have to go promote for the UFC if they ask you to. You have to show up for promotional fight. You know, fighters have to do show up for events besides their fight to promote the UFC, the brand or promote a sponsorship or whatever. That's extra work. That's in comp- on top of it. And on top of that, it's USADA. The fighters have to be available at all times if called on to do a drug test. Then let me ask you this. If this doesn't set off an alarm bell, the UFC kept going to Paulo Costa really early in the morning, 5 a.m., whatever, and they did it even on a fight day. And Dana White came out and said, that shit's never going to happen again. Doesn't that sound odd? I mean, aren't they supposed to be impartial, even though, oh my God, the UFC is paying the people that monitor their guys and gals for drugs. That, that that sentence doesn't even sit right. But further to have him come out and say that won't happen again, as though he could change the way USADA does their job, I don't understand. Well, that. yeah, it's because USADA and UFC have a contract. I mean, exactly. it's, they, they have the semblance of it's an independent body doing it's the drug not, testing though. for UFC. And they kind of are, but at the same time, they're not because they've carved out exemptions. And some of the exemptions we are not aware of because that contract wasn't made public. It's supposed to be Switzerland. And Dana came right out and said it won't happen again. Like, he can go over there and change Switzerland. Yeah, I mean, it's that is the the, the problem is the UFC presents themselves as an impartial body, like a league. You know, the NFL is not the teams. The NFL is the league. But you're dealing with, no, this is the owner. This is the Yankees or the Cowboys dealing with their players. And, of course, their players don't have a collective bargaining agreement. So it's it's a little one-sided. Um, can fighters even form a union if they're independent contractors? Well, if they're independent contractors, they can't. And they, So that's the big question. Are they independent contractors or are they employees? If they're independent contractors, then they do not get any of the protections of the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act. And so that if they try to organize collectively, it's basically it's collusion if they work together like on a strike or something. Wait, back uh, up. For those out there that might not know, what is collusion? Collusion is whenever it's usually an economic business term. It's under the Sherman Act. It's when people work together to give themselves a financial advantage. So if like two businesses get together and decide like we are not going to pay our workers as much and we're the only two people employing workers and we're going to sit together we're going to work together to keep the the paid lower that's collusion you can't work together to, to push down wages or you can't work together to push down the cost of a commodity that you're buying so that's collusion so 
the fighters, if they're independent contractors, can't work together that way and do strikes or collectively work together because that would be collusion. If you're if you all go together and say we are not going to fight unless we get this minimum amount of money, well, if you're independent contractors, technically that's collusion. You can't make that demand. That's what if you're an association, you couldn't make that demand either. That's the problem with an association. But if they're but are they are they employees right now? The status dictated by the UFC is that they're independent contractors. Who determines that is either the National Labor uh, Review Board or the the uh, or the, I, the IRS. That's the two people. So either the IRS would say no under our standard, they're employees, or the NLRB, and that's what Project Spearhead tried to do. Leslie Smith and uh, Lucas Middlebrook. They they sent out. They tried to initiate, they sent a complaint to the NLRB that the UFC had reprised against her because you cannot reprise against employees for doing labor actions, but you can against independent contractors. They get none of those protections, as I said. So they applied, they sent an uh, allegation to the NLRB to look at their plan was that if the NLRB would then rule that she's an employee, they didn't. And there's a lot of evidence. I mean, people might, there's a lot of evidence that the Trump administration that they put in there, people in there are what kicked that can down the road that got got the case thrown out. The other plan of Project Spirit was to get all the fighters to sign authorization cards. I'm sure we'll talk about that in a bit, how you form a union, but get them to sign these cards and basically force the NLRB to make a decision. Are they employees or are they independent contractors? And it never got far enough to make that decision. How do you actually go about making a union? Okay, well, the the first thing, if you're if you are employees... If you're an employee and the union process might determine if you're an employee because it might force the NLRB to take a look at you. If you're an employee, then the the first thing is that you can start what you have to start organizing. And usually you have to you have to build a committee. It's not as simple as like, oh, we're all gonna get together and make a union. There are steps, and you gotta remember that the businesses today are a much better advantage. Businesses actively work to, to prevent unions at their at their place of business. Employers work against unions. And we have watered down laws, and we have no penalties for often businesses for taking repri- for reprisals on workers that make it very difficult and very scary for a lot of workers to organize. So the first thing is you usually have to put together some sort of committee, a group of people that are going to work on organizing the other workers. Then step one would be, You'd have to get workers to sign up and you sign union authorization cards. This is what Project Spirit was trying to do. You've got to get workers to sign it. And if you can get 30% of the workforce to sign them, then, then that can be submitted to the NLRB. Step two would be for the, NL, the National Labor Review Board to come in and determine if you got those 30%, let's say, you got the 30%, the NLRB would come in and determine who is eligible to vote in a union election. And then it would oversee the election. And then that election would be all the workers that are eligible would vote. If 50% vote, 50% plus one person vote, then the union wins. If the union wins, the employer must recognize and bargain with the union. Of course, that's the way it should be. But of course, many employers will contest the election. So it might be a while before they ever get around to actually negotiating or bargaining with that union. Step three, then the final step would be you have a union representing the bargaining unit, which is the employers, and they're there to negotiate and finally sign a collective bargaining agreement contract with the employer. Wow. Okay. So the thing that's going on with Starbucks right now, I saw that one Starbucks in 
New York, in upstate New York. They received something from the NLRB and they were supposed to do some work with the workers or something along those lines. And they patently refused. So that is what you're talking about, where that they don't have enough incentive to be worried about penalties. There's no penalties. There, there was something called the PRO Act, uh, a pro-union act that was they were attempt to pass. There was a bill that proposed, didn't get to, didn't have enough support because we have a 50% Democrat and 50% Republicans. Republicans, as a rule, generally oppose unions. Democrats do not 100% support them. So some of the, the penalties, though, the tax penalties, uh, not tax penalties, but the penalties that were considered uh, tax revenue was put into the uh, the reconciliation bill, but then it was taken out when they watered it down. So we lost these penalties that would make it easier for people to form a union because we certain things that the workers couldn't do. They couldn't, if the employers couldn't do it, the employers, you know, they can force workers to sit through these mandatory meetings telling about the evils of unions. Uh, they can basically fire workers that are trying to organize a union. Now that's illegal. You can't really fire someone trying to organize a union. But there's no real penalty for workers. We we don't have those penalties, not for workers, no, there's no penalty for the employers. There's no real fines that make them not to do that. And so we don't have a lot of the, the sticks to keep employers honest on these negotiations. And that's the stuff I'm talking about. And in fact, you can see with some of the negotiations, I mean, for some of the problems organizing, getting the votes on a union, you can see with Amazon and Starbucks what's going on right now. Starbucks is getting a lot of people to choose unions. And one of the benefits they have is there's very few workers at a Starbucks. So you don't have to get the message out to a lot of people. You need, you have 20 people working at Starbucks. You need 10 of them to vote. First, you only need about six of them to, to hand in authorization cards to have a vote. And only 10, 11, 50% plus one out of the 20 to vote to get them to say, we want a union. And so that helps all these Starbucks. They're very small workforce, right? Mm-hmm. What hurts Starbucks is that they're easily replaceable. The the Starbucks can threaten the, the workers in the fact that there's in a city, there might be hundreds of Starbucks and they could basically say, oh, you want a union? We're going to close that Starbucks. And that's I've also uh, seen that happen, too. That's a big problem. That's the weakness of that structure right there. The other problem with Amazon is Amazon facilities are huge, thousands. And so you've got to get this message out to thousands of people. What they have over fighters and stuff, fighters are spread around the world. What they have is they're all in one spot. So you can kind of send the message there, but you have to get thousands of of, uh, Amazon workers to agree to it. The thing is, Amazon for years, changing slightly in the current environment because of the labor issues, you know, there's lack of workers. But for years, Amazon ran a policy that they didn't want people working there a long time. They basically work people on the ground and they quit. Well, if you're trying to organize workers into voting for a union and get them to sign authorization cards, at the end of the year, you present your 30% and one third of the company has quit and moved on. They're no longer considered part of their, their authorization card no longer counts. You have to get new authorization cards signed. And so it makes it really hard to organize these Amazons. On top of that, they have the same threat because there's not a lot of unions. There's only one place that's voted for union Amazon, have a union representing an Amazon warehouse, is Amazon can basically scare workers not to vote for union, even if they want one, by saying if a union comes, you know, and they don't have to come out and publicly say it. They can do a whisper campaign. Management can go around and bring this up. If a union comes, we might close this warehouse and move it to another, another place. And that means you'd just be out of work. Wow, and so that's a that's a, a strong intimidation uh, tactic that unions have. It's not like the old days. In the past, 
we used to have like workers in, you know, there'd be all the workers in the auto industry and the auto industry based in Detroit. You couldn't shut down Detroit. You couldn't threaten to realistically move because we didn't have spots yet to, to move the factories. But then we opened up trade deals, made right to work states in the South. And so if a union is negotiating in a factory, let's say in Michigan, and they're asking for too much, they can realistically now close that factory if they ask for too much and open it up in the South or now in Mexico or in China overseas. And so unions and workers have much less leverage. All right. I got another question for you. Fire, fire away. The Screen Actors Guild seems to work. The Writers Guild seems to work. The The Motion Picture, Picture Editors Guild, of which you're a member, seems to work. How come they, they the fighters can't do something like that? Because they're a union. And the thing is, is the actors aren't tied to a single movie or a single studio. They get to move around. So how come fighters can't do something similar to SAG? Well, first of all, Hollywood's a union town, so that's that's why un- you know, Hollywood wages are higher. And that's, but I don't know if it's going to last forever. And I should note, I was a former member of MPEG. I'm no longer, currently, no longer. I'm in good standing, but I'm no longer, a, a, not currently, a member of MPEG because the job I have is not a, it's not the type of job you, you're at MPEG for. But anyways, that's that, I digress. But I'm a big supporter of the Hollywood unions, and uh, the the problem with that is. For one is that the unions, I mean, unions, if you look at it, SAG and the Hollywood unions are almost perfect for fighters because they set a minimum, like a SAG minimum. You cannot pay below this rate if you want to work with SAG. Uh, and also the the high-end talent is still free to move around and make as much money as possible. They're not stuck at one location. The problem is SAG was formed in a whole different era. When SAG came about in the 1930s and, 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 and went through all the labor issues in the 30s and 40s after the Warner Act was passed, one is it let independent contractors in. A lot of them were allowed into unions. There was also wildcat strikes. There all these things, these, these greater rules that apply to them. On top of that, there's something called pre-hires. Now, MMA fighters are a lot like actors. You can't, when you unionize, you unionize a workforce. Well, if you have a movie, you don't have a workforce yet. So it wouldn't work to say, oh, who's on this movie? Now let's go and see if they want to make a union. You need to be a union member before you even step on set. Otherwise, the union could never negotiate properly, right? And so there's something called pre-hire. And pre-hire generally applies to construction workers only. So, But California and some other, you know, the film industry states, New York, they allow, they, they explicitly include pre-hiring into the, the, the studios unions, the Hollywood unions. And so you have a union membership before you even go on the job. So... That's one thing doesn't exist in other unions, and you'd have to get that kind of exemption probably in in MMA if you wanted it to operate like SAG. What are some of the things that make MMA so hard for the union to work for them as a sport? Well, it, it, the biggest one is probably is that the short careers. I, it shouldn't be one thing. It's actually short careers. And their interchangeability of the fighters. They're not, they're, they're not, they are interchangeable. So their solidarity is very difficult. If people get a chance, Dominic Foxworth once wrote an article about why the NFL should decertify its union and become an association. And it gets down to the, the why he thinks that should happen. And the reason is because for NFL players, their careers are so short, 
any work stoppage, the th for union, the number one threat you have is a work stoppage. If we can't come to a collective bargaining agreement, we're going to negotiate, we can't come to an agreement, we can stop providing our labor. We are legally allowed to strike without it being collusion and stop providing our labor. Well, for UFC fighters, even more so than NFL players, careers are very short. So if you stop providing your labor, you're not going to make any money and your short career, you've just lost a big portion of your career. If you're a worker in another industry, if you're a teacher, you can be on strike for six months as a cheap teacher, and you might make up, make much more than what you lost over the next 10, 20, 30 years that you're going to be a teacher. For fighters, your career might last another year. You might never regain your position where you currently are. On top of that, you're interchangeable. So if you go on strike... It's very easy for the UFC to go, well, we don't need you. We're going to get the other 10,000 fighters waiting to come into our, the ranks who want to join the UFC. Even NFL doesn't have that because the worst player, the NFL, the teams are trying to win. That's what they're trying to do. And so how do you win? You sign the best players. Even the guys in the bottom of the, the back of the bench are the best guys at the back of the bench on a team. They're the best 45th player on a team, right? You're trying to get the best players to make your team as competitive as possible. Well, in MMA, the prelim guys is, I mean, we've seen on Care Don't Care, we talk about some of these guys have like won one fight in seven and still in the UFC. Are they really the best in their best prelim fighter possible? Or it just doesn't matter for the UFC for that position. They're interchangeable. You can easily replace those guys. So you have those two things working against you interchangeability of a lot of the fighters and the ones that aren't. Are, are this is their their moment of being a top 10 a valuable fighter might be very short and they don't feel like they can give up a large portion of that uh, the other issue is the employee status fighters want to be employees that's the argument that there's a benefit to being employees but for ufc fighters if you became employees i guess the question is what are the benefits because Employee gets health care, which would be great for fighters. But employee health care is based on how, how long you work. You have to work at least 30 hours a week, uh, like 120 days of the year to be eligible for that health care, right? Do fighters work that much? Would they be employees that much? Are they? If, in other words, when do you consider a fighter an employee? Are they employee for the, the night of the fight? Well, that's obviously not enough. Are they employee the week of the fight when they have to do those responsibilities? Okay, that wouldn't be enough. But if they're, re, if they're an employee full-time, then guess what? Employee status gives the UFC control over them, right? And if they have control over them, that means not only do they pay them to be just for their fight, but they might require them to do stuff like show up at UFC gyms and work there. If they're going to be paying them as full-time employees and offering them health care, then they're going to probably want them to get extra labor out of them. And so they also, because they're in control, they can dictate who they train with, where they train, how long they train, when their training sessions happen. Uh, they, the fighter wouldn't have a say over when they fight and who the opponent is like they do now. So there's a lot of things, probably drawbacks to that. And, and, and it's for that reason, too. I don't even know if legally fighters can ever be employees because there's a New York rel regulations about liability for compensation for employees that they're responsible for injuries. But that regulation, they also have another regulation that says basically they're an exemption for boxing because boxing alone, the ultimate goal is physical incapacitation of the participants to actually hurt your opponent. Other sports, you know, you hurt people in football, but the, the objective of football is to score. The objective of boxing is to punch someone. The objective of MMA is to hurt and beat up your opponent. And so for that reason, they're according to the 
the state regulations in, in New York, the, boxers are not eligible whatsoever for employee status. They have to be independent contractors. And that's to that, I'm not sure. I think other states might follow that guideline. So I'm not even sure it's legal to be an employee as a combat sports guy under those regulations. So that's another, that's a massive hurdle for, for fighters. The, the final problem that fighters are going to face as employees in union is that a union is not, as much as people think it is, a union is not what gives players in other sports so much money. It's not what causes players in other sports to make so much money. The guy that negotiated those contracts for a lot of those CBAs is a guy named James Quinn. And James Quinn talks about it. He has a book out called Don't Be Afraid to Win, where he talks about the number one reason players make more is not the union, it's free agency, it's competition. And so fighters could be employees and make a union in the UFC. They're not going to be able, just by having a UN, uh, union, demand like the same 50% wage share that players in other sports do. They get that 50% wage share solely because the competition of free agency drove up the wages and the, the owners are like, we would like an agreement with you to, to keep it at 50%. Otherwise, if there's if we had go back to free agency because all the leagues are actually technically conduct, uh, the all the leagues are technically in violation of the Sherman Act. They're doing antitrust violations by their actions, working together, having salary caps, uh, drafts, all that stuff's a violation of the the Sherman Act. They need the players in a union to give an exemption from antitrust. So the the creating the union alone does not make your wage share skyrocket. You know, we always talk about wage share. If you look at the Major League Baseball, they had a union for years and and their wage share was going down in the early 70s. It was down to like 17 percent in 1972. Then Kurt Flood and, and the other players got involved and Marvin Miller and they got the reserve claw thrown out and wages skyrocketed. That's when they started going up higher and higher. The same with the NBA and the, a, the ABA. It's league after league. It's competition that drove up wages. And we see it now with Major League Soccer. Major League Soccer is a union. Major League Soccer is dealing with a league that's a single – the league works as one entity. Kind of like the UFC, it's a single entity, single entity monopoly in this case. Their wage share is very small. They're not getting a large percentage of the wages. They're getting like 25%, basically like UFC fighters in that ballpark. With the UFC, you're dealing with a single entity monopoly. So even if you created a union and negotiating, you're negotiating with just the one party. And on top of just negotiating with them in one party, which means less weight, lower wages because there's no competition, you're also, by having a union and signing a CBA with them, you are granting them, you'd be granting them an antitrust exemption. And which means that the stuff that the that you couldn't punish them, you can't use antitrust lawsuits against them to, to, to punish them for their behavior because you're now giving them that exemption because they're not... It's not like the other leagues where there's multiple team owners and they have a cartel and they need that cartel to operate together. It's a single entity. So they don't need the other teams. I'm having a hard time here. Is there any reason they should try to form a union? It sounds terrible. I know. it's a, And that's the sad truth. I don't think – I think MMA and boxing is a specific industry where a union doesn't, doesn't help. But that doesn't mean I think it's a bad idea. I think it was really good what Leslie Smith did and Lucas Middlebrook. I, if you talk to uh, the MMAFA guys, the guys that are doing the antitrust lawsuit, trying to get the Ali Act passed, trying to get an association, 
they, they get in arguments with uh, Lucas Middlebrook and all the other union supporters all the time on Twitter. I have the opposite view. I think it's good to try to fight for employee status. I think it's good to try to do the union stuff because at the very least, even though I don't think a union would help you in the end, at very least, the employee, the argument that you're an employee might force the UFC to back off on some of the, the some of the actions they're taking that are more likely to make fighters considered employees. So the more you can test that and the more likely it looks like they might be ruled employees, the more likely the UFC is maybe to back off on some of the provisions they have in their contract, some of the stuff they do that treats fighters like employees and make them much more independent contractors. Unions, associations, is one more likely to work than the other? Well, I think an association is the more likely choice for the simple fact is you don't have to have solidarity with all the fighters. Because okay. as we said, the, the the interchangeability of fighters, especially those at the bottom, who, you know, have they don't have ranking, they're just they're really replaceable, makes it very hard to get enough fighters to work to solidarity. If you have an association, you don't need as many. And this, although an association can't collectively bargain, is what most people want, but association can do other things. They can promote stuff, laws, regulations, take they can they can conduct lawsuits. An association has standing, so you can file lawsuits. Now we always argue, like, oh my God, I can't believe how Nate Diaz was in this contract. He should have challenged it. Well, Maybe there's other fighters in these situations that seem so unfair and it seems very obvious that the contract's illegal, but they don't have the resources to challenge the promoter, but an association can do the lawsuit on their behalf. They can pool the resources so one fighter is not responsible for the whole lawsuit. They can also collectively go lobby for bills like the Ali Act. They can try to get that passed. I mean, uh, a few fighters showing up in Washington ain't going to do much, but if you had not all the fighters, but if you had, let's say, 10, 20, 30 of the top UFC fighters showing up and, and lobbying for it and promoting it and showing up with con, you know, members of elected officials to help them with their elections, they might support it. That might be the momentum you need to get something like that passed. So that's easier than going through the whole process of you're going to get everybody to stand together in solidarity and not fight, which you know is never going to happen. If you've spoken to any, I mean, we've seen on Twitter, there's more than enough fighters that are willing to jump over the other fighters to get a spot. And, you know, I mean, and for the UFC, it's not like other sports. You know, if 50% of the NFL doesn't show up, you can't hold games, games on Sunday. If if the UFC is going to hold an event, they're only going to hold one every week max. You only need 20 fighters. You, if you can't find those 20 fighters in the UFC, you can find them anywhere because there's no rules. There's no minimum entry to be a fighter in the UFC. They can declare anybody a UFC fighter and fill up their roster. So there, there's, it's very hard to have a work stoppage that's ever going to work with them. So there's that. But for, for an association, you could work together to lobby. You can, I think the lawsuits might be one of the best things you can do is you can work together to file lawsuits. You just can't collectively bargain and, can, and can't conduct strikes. I saw this article from Stephen oh. Morocco today. Okay. And he was uh, talking about an interview that Jake Paul did on his brother's show, Impulsive. And he was saying that he was, and I quote, we're going to raise $50 million and the fighters who are fighting check to check, we will fund them. Oh, wait, stop. Stop right there. You don't have to go any farther. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah, that's, I mean, right there, should you're... My spider sense going off. That's that's nonsense. <laughs> Tell me, can you unpack this for me? Because I was reading this and I was wondering if maybe I was having the wrong reaction, but I was very incredulous when I read that particular part. Well, it's I, I mean, 
I, I can't I can't tell what Jake Paul's real motivations are, if he's sincere or not. He might be very well sincere. And I hats off to him if he really wants to help fighters. But one thing he's gonna start a United Fighters Association. It's gonna be a union, right? So those employees, but it's gonna cover not just UFC fighters, all MMA fighters. Okay, well, that's not how a union works. You first we just talked about here, all fighters are not gonna be considered employees. And you unionize a place of work. You don't. We don't have sectorial bargaining in the United States. You can't do an entire industry. And on top of that, you have boxers. We already know boxers are not employees. In fact, that we know also there's regulation that covers boxing that says they cannot be an employee. They have to be an independent contractor. And I imagine that the same MMA fighters, the same regulation would apply to them. So right there, that that makes me think. Okay, if you really thought this through, but then he brings up the fifty million dollars, <laughs> and. He's going to raise fifty million to pay the the bottom tier fighters, so they don't because who won't who can hold out, so they, they they can hold out with the rest of them. As we just mentioned earlier, they're completely replaceable. So you're gonna you're gonna burn through your money paying the guys that the UFC can just pull people off the regionals and no one will miss. I mean, that, that's I'm not trying to be mean to those fighters. That's the truth. They are not the people that draw traffic. They're they are in the UFC solely at the leisure of the UFC, as we talk and week after week. We bring on some care don't care. We're amazed at some of the people that are in the UFC. So they are not paying them to not fight is not going to stop the UFC from holding shows. And on top of that, you're going to raise $50 million to pay fighters not to fight. Who's going to give them the money and, and knowing that they will never get that money back? <laughs> Who's going to do this incredible act of charity? I just find it inc- I just find it really unbelievable. But not only because it wouldn't work, but who's going to do that? <laughs> Oh, my goodness. The voice of reason, John Nash, folks. Yeah, well, also, sorry. The voice of reason is a sobering voice because now I'm looking at this and I'm thinking there is no way they're ever going to be a union. And it's highly unlikely they're even going to get to association point at least in that five-year time frame that I initially asked you about. Yeah, I mean... We, we've had associations because all it does is people get together and have associations, but you mean an effective association, exactly. one that's yeah. a large enough association that's acting and acting change. So, yeah, that's it. That's the big hurdle. Uh, and, and the other thing, too, is for the people that want a union, to me, it'd be easier to make the association first. Mm. And then, I mean, again, I because of all the reasons of a single entity monopoly and stuff, but if you really wanted a union in, MM, in UFC, which... Uh, I don't think this would be, I actually don't think this would be positive, but one thing you could do is you could agree to sign a CBA with the UFC if they granted you union status. In other words, you make us a union, we'll, we'll become a CBA, and that'll give you antitrust immunity. Hmm. So that's, you can trade off the antitrust uh, case if the UFC feels they need protection from it. But right now, that's the only thing so far that's done anything, the antitrust case. It's the, it's the reason we know what the wage share is, because of disclosure. It's the reason Francis Ngannou and Paula Costa, Costa are at the end of their their, uh, you know, their contracts. Yeah. And I see Paulo Costa is really going to examine free agency. He's tweeting every single day about his miserable contract. Yeah. So you'd be giving up the one thing that's done anything so far by doing that. And I don't know what they would exchange in exchange for what, I don't know what the negotiation would be, but I'm just showing that's an example of what could be done. But uh, I, uh, I guess the next step we'll talk in the future, I guess the other option for fighters is the Ali act. And we'll have to, I guess our next one, our next episode, that's probably yeah. what we'll cover. And that's, that's going to wrap up the show. So John, 
what have you got going on? Because I know that you dropped a show money in between the time we recorded last episode to this one. And maybe there might be an article coming out. I'm not sure. Tell us what you got. Uh, I've got, we did a show money a little while ago, right after the last episode came out. We are planning the 50th show money. I don't know when, as you know, show money is not a regular feature. It does not come out on a regular schedule and who knows when the next one will be, but it'll be the 50th. So we're hoping to do something special when it finally comes out. Uh, I might be doing if the shoes fits this Tuesday. I didn't think I was planning on it, but, uh, I might be stepping in for someone. We will see. So tune in article wise. I have stuff I'd like to write, but I have a very busy schedule work the next couple of weeks. So I doubt I'll have anything written after that. I might have some time. And then on top of that, I am still working on a book with Jacob Davids, uh, which we are hoping to have out sometime. Some, we'll say sometime next year. I don't want to be J.R. Uh, Martin and overpromise. <laughs> good, good reference there. George R.R. Martin. I said J.R. J.R. George R.R. Martin. Yeah. Sorry. Hey, that's all right. We crisscrossed our fantasy novels, but it is okay. On that fine note, we are going to wrap. You can find John on Twitter at Hey Not the Face. So check them out there, give them a follow, and until next time, please stay safe. Thank you for tuning in to this Bloody Elbow Presents production. To check out more of our content, subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is titled Bloody Elbow Presents. We're also on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Overcast, Player FM, and Amazon Music. Just search for Bloody Elbow Presents and you'll get brand new shows throughout the week, including Care Don't Care, the Level Change Podcast, the MMA Vivis Section, the Sixth Round Post Fight Show, Sixth Round Retro, the MMA Depressed Us, Crooklyn's Corner, Exclusive Fighter Interviews, Show Money, Guest Podcasts, the Hey Not the Face podcast, and radio style play by play for every UFC pay per view. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Bloody Elbow blog, and as always on BloodyElbow.com.